Good morning, my friends. I'm Pastor Stephen Brooks. Welcome today to Morning Glory, our midweek Bible study. And I'm so happy that you're here today. I want to invite you, grab your Bibles and meet me today in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 29. We're going to begin there. We're going to look at a few different scriptures today. And we're going to look at some scriptures from the law, also from the prophets, as well as from the New Testament, so that we can have a good understanding of the church of the end times. Praise God. Is the church destined for failure or defeat? Is the church destined for a glorious rising up? Praise God. And eventually, a taking up into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Let's talk about that today, and let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we jump into your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come with lightning fast anointing so that the eyes of our understanding are illuminated in the deep and intimate knowledge of Jesus and his word in all of his ways. Thank you, Father God. Let the spirit of wisdom and revelation flow. We give you praise for our understanding of our purpose and our assignment during these times of the golden era of the church. We give you praise in Jesus' name, and around the world we all together say, Amen. Praise God. Okay, so today we're talking about the church of the last days, and the best way to get a good understanding of knowing where we're going is to identify with the patterns of where we have already been. Praise God. So to understand the stage that God is setting, we need to look, my friends, today at some biblical patterns. Praise God. And these are biblical patterns for revival. Mm -mm. I love saying that word. Why don't you say it right now with me? Say revival. Mm -mm. Just seems to roll off the tongue with a, an anointing of the Holy Spirit. Praise God. So you're going to see today that before there are judgments, before there are these times where God deals with certain things and uh, maybe there's wars or maybe there's uh, great difficulties, you'll see that before those things take place, there is always a pattern of revival that first takes place among God's uh, uh, people, and as well as while the church is enjoying the revival touch of God, of course, it always spreads to the nations because that gives the unbelievers the opportunity to become believers in Messiah Jesus. Praise the Lord. So let's look first at the nation of Israel. And of course, throughout their storied history, they have had many revivals but really, uh, we think of the big one, which was the epic move of God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and uh, out, uh, as we would say, from a prophetic sense or a sense of biblical typology, being brought from the kingdom of darkness, ruled over by the evil Lord, or, you know, which was Pharaoh was a, he was a picture of Satan, and they were brought out of darkness, out of the kingdom of darkness into the promised land. Hallelujah. So God uh, gave them deliverance from the fiery furnace of slavery down in Egypt. And he did it in a dramatic way by inflicting the Egyptians and all of Pharaoh's house and all of the Egyptians with the horrific 10 plagues that humiliated and humbled the people of Egypt. 
And God brought his people out and then split the Red Sea. And they went through the depths of the Red Sea and crossed over on the other side. And Pharaoh and his army endeavoring to pursue, they drowned in the middle of the sea. Praise God. So, my friends, on the other side, there was revival, as we could say. But let's not forget that while they were rejoicing in revival, hey, we've had a move of God. We're no longer in bondage. You know, it wasn't until later that they went, or actually immediately, but once they got into the wilderness, that the level of rebellion against God, against God's appointed leadership, really began to uh, manifest. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until everybody that was above the age of 20, the unbelieving, doubting generation that said, oh no, we can't go up and take the land, they all perished. Now you had Joshua, you had Caleb, God kept them alive because they were people of faith and they went into their inheritance. But you can see how before there came a time where God would deal with his people uh, into very strict measures before that, that there was an outpouring or great move of God. We especially see this in the book of Judges. And it's very interesting to read about uh, these individuals that God raised up to deliver Israel out of these cyclical patterns of being in bondage to uh, neighbors and other small nation powers that would suppress them and subjugate them and make them basically become their slaves and also not, not only be subjugated to having to do all their menial labor and work, but they also have to pay outrageous taxes. And it was just a total domination of the bad guys dominating the people of God. And that Israel always got themselves into that mess. Why? Because of not obeying the law, the law and all of its commandments. And when they turned from the law, when they in turn from, uh, turned away from God's instructions, there's nothing waiting on the other side but disaster. And so after being in such horrible bondage for a while, after a few years or a few decades, it would cry out, repent. <laughs> God would raise up one of the judges and then there would be uh, a means of temporary deliverance until they went back into rebellion again, and it just repeated itself. But you could see that before there was that rebellion and that uh, those very difficult times of God meting out punishment and judgment in order to deal with their hearts, there would always be that fresh wind of revival, praise God, of saying we're done with sin, and then God raising up a deliverer, and you're finally getting free. Hallelujah. So we see these principles acted out so often throughout the Bible. And then, of course, we have the reign of Solomon and a very uh, high watermark for the history of God's people, the Israelites. And we see the glory of God in the temple manifesting tremendously. Uh, this was the temple that Solomon built uh, under his instructions. And David had the blueprints. Uh, his father had designed all the blueprints and all. But Solomon, the man of peace, is the one that built it. And when it was time for the dedication, oh, the offerings that were going up, even Solomon himself giving over 1,000 uh, bulls as an offering. And it was just tremendous. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple so strong. Now think about this. This is Old Testament. 
the glory came in so strong that the priest could not even stand up to minister. Okay, so uh, these are real events that took place with God's people and their types and shadows because the church is going into a place of epic outpouring of the Spirit. Now, I want to ask you a question, and it's not meant to maybe, uh, how can I say, make you think that your experience with God uh, is anything less than what it could be, but have you ever had a time in your life where God's glory came upon you so strong that you could not even stand up? So what I'm trying to say is that this happened under the old covenant, and so the new covenant, we have a uh, we have better promises, and we have also this potential to walk in the greater glory, and that is what the church is going to walk in. Now, I would like to say I've had a lot of experiences where I, I could hardly stand, <laughs> but I've actually only had a few. <laughs> but I have had times where the glory got so strong, I literally collapsed my legs could not hold me up, and it was not just my legs that got weak. My whole body got weak, and I just completely collapsed, but it was a good collapsing. I collapsed in laughter and joy because of the glory. I tell you, that was a great day uh, those priests had. They couldn't stand up. They couldn't execute their official duties, in a sense, because the glory was so strong, but I'm sure there was a lot of laughing and a lot of good times going on there at the temple. And then think about the magnitude of this. So the glory is there so thick, so strong, but then just a a couple of decades later, Solomon has gotten himself into idolatry and the results of that are so devastating that uh, upon his death, the kingdom literally splits in half. Now you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Uh, What a mess. And think about that, that revival precedes judgment. And they had a tremendous revival. The glory is so strong, people can't even stand up in the meetings. And just a few decades later, the thing, there's such a mess and so much sin that the nation literally splits apart. And of course, the 10 kingdoms up north uh, or known as the Northern Kingdom, they can't even worship God technically or biblically the correct way because you're supposed to worship God in Jerusalem. So immediately they have separated themselves out of the will of God. And uh, it was uh, many, many difficulties that they faced. So we do see biblical patterns for revival that revival precedes, goes before judgment. Woo, praise God. Get ready. Get ready for a revival spirit to touch your life, and most importantly, for the great revival that we're heading towards because we are in the end times. Praise the Lord. Now, let's dig deeper. Is there in the Bible, is there evidence of perhaps what we could call a great end time revival, a great mighty outpouring of the Spirit destined for the last days that we could actually anticipate? I believe Scripture speaks very clearly on this. And, my friends, I think we can see it also very clearly in the three distinct sieges of Jerusalem that happened over the centuries. And let's talk about that just for a moment. We see uh, the first siege, excuse me, siege that happened of Jerusalem took place with King Hezekiah 
when the Assyrians came against him. Let's take a look at this in Second Chronicles chapter 29. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 3. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Okay, so here we have Hezekiah cleansing the temple. He's very serious about restoring pure worship to God. Verse 20, then King Hezekiah rose early, gathered the rulers of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And so now he's getting all of the priests activated, getting everybody involved. We have, my friends, what is evidence of revival that is taking place. We could see this uh, very clearly. Uh, look at verse uh Verse 21 reveals all of the animals that are being sacrificed. Verse 22, so they killed the bulls and the priest received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, they killed the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. So everything is being restored. The temple worship with all of the instruments is being restored further in this chapter. And then as we move over to uh, chapter 30, we drop down to verse 12. And it says, also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. So everybody in Judah is turning back to God. You also have some of those even from the northern uh, uh, tribes that realize God is moving uh, down there in Jerusalem, and they start coming down also because they want to get uh, away from this mixture of worshiping Jehovah and also at the same time worshiping Baal and uh, all of the other idols that they had gotten themselves tangled up with. They want to get right with God. So verse 13, now many people, a very great assembly gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. And these were all the altars that had been given over to demons. Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. Verse 18, for a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them saying, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And look at verse 20. You know revival's going on when you see verse 20. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Woo! Praise God. So people are coming back to God. People are getting their lives right with God. And in essence, that means you're now uh, moving away from disobedience and you're now obeying what God's word says. And you, when God says, this is right, you say, okay, I love it. I agree with it. I'm all in. As David said, your law to me is a delight. So there's a joy in obeying the Lord and recognizing the great dangers of not obeying the commandments. Praise the Lord. So the Lord is moving, and we see it further in verse 24. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls. Oh, 
He's he's uh, he's he's just on fire for the Lord. My friends, that is part of revival. That is part of the Spirit of God moving. When there's true revival, money flows. People's hearts are no longer like hard as a rock, but their hearts become soft. And uh, there are unbelievers who've been on the planet for 70, 80 years. They've never given one dollar to God, not even one penny to the work of God. They've given it to all kinds of other places and stuff, but they have never done anything kingdom. And in the same way, you have, you have their hearts being touched. They want to get right with God, and then they want to support the work of God. And at the same time, you have Christians, many who've been in the church and maybe they lived, have lived in a prosperous country or something like that, and the most they ever gave to God was $5. <laughs> but suddenly they get delivered, <laughs> and they love God. And the next thing you know, they are giving generously. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. So... In the new covenant, God sees all of us believers as priests, as kings and priests unto him. So as a priest, there is the sanctification. That means you're fed up and done with sin. You've had it. You, you, you found out the grass is not greener on the other side. You found out the devil is a liar and he's a killer. And you're like, I'm not messing with that garbage anymore. I'm serving God. I'm living all out for God. Mm-mm. So there is a sanctification that takes place during Revival. Praise the Lord. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, also the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel. Now listen to verse 26. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. What's going on? All out full-blown revival. Mm-mm. This is not normal. This is this is God moving in a mighty way. People's hearts are turning back to God. People all over the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, they're coming back to the Lord. People from the northern kingdom, they're coming back to the Lord, and they're gathering in Jerusalem, repenting, turning from sin. Priests are realizing, hey, we have defiled ourselves by not obeying the commandments. They're getting sanctified so they can serve in the temple. <laughs> Ooh, revival is on. Praise the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Revival also, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it precedes judgment. Anytime you see this great moving of God, that's because the Lord is pulling his people back to him because difficult times will be ahead. Praise the Lord. And uh, it wasn't too long after that in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. Now, all of this is going on in his first year, but in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, the king Sennacherib of Assyria surrounded Jerusalem and began to uh, besiege it. So, uh, you know, it doesn't take long sometimes for people's hearts to lose the focus, lose the fire. That's why God pulls a whole bunch in. Amen. And, uh, you know, many stick. You know, you could see a great... Billy Graham crusade, and you could have uh, maybe in the meeting, maybe 70,000 give their hearts to Christ. But later, as time goes on and the revival uh, fire maybe cools, uh, you realize it didn't take for everybody, but oh, it sure did for some. Hallelujah. And the sum total is that millions and millions come to Christ all over the world. 
Hallelujah. Praise God. My friends, we have to get ready. There must be preparation. Uh, Revival always precedes judgment. Now, let's look at the second significant siege of Jerusalem that took place. And uh, this actually took place during the reign of King Zedekiah. Mm -mm. So, 40 years before uh, the king, how can we say, had a total meltdown, there was a massive revival that took place through Josiah. And Josiah was only eight years old when he was appointed as king and he began to reign. But when he was 26 years old, revival hit and he was all in. They had discovered the law and they read it and they were horrified. They said, oh my goodness, we've, we've, we've broken almost everything God said don't do. We, we've done it and everything we're supposed to do, we haven't done it. And so they brought a prophet in to get uh, counsel from what the Lord would say. And so it was basically the saying was repent and get right because your time to flourish is right now. Uh, But remember, revival precedes judgment, and judgment came later on through King Zedekiah. Oh, and it was, oh, well, I'll show it to you. It's severe what happened to him. But before I show it to you, remember what what you're about to read, this phenomenal judgment just 40 years earlier with Josiah, there was full blown revival that was taking place. Now, we go over to Second Chronicles chapter 35. 2 Chronicles 35. Let, let's look just a little bit at Josiah before I share with you what happened to Zedekiah. And remember, we're seeing patterns, and these patterns replicate throughout the Bible, and these patterns also are going forward, going ahead of us, and this will tell us something about the position and the, the calling of the end-time church, which we are a part of. Excuse me just a moment. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Second Chronicles 35, verse 1. Now Josiah kept the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priest in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. So again, he's got to get all of the priests ready, get everybody prepared, because his heart now is completely given over to follow after the Lord. All right, let's go to verse 16. So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the to the command of King Josiah. And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. Watch this. Now watch verse 18. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet, and none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept, with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Wow. Praise the Lord. He's on fire. The whole nation's on fire with revival. They've had it again. They're fed up with sin. Let's break all of these stupid idols to demons. Let's throw them and let's, let's do what the other good old kings did. Throw all this junk in the Kidron Valley. By the way, that's where all the junk goes. <laughs> it's a great place for an archaeologist to look around that. Hallelujah. But they're just fed up, not only with sin, but the devastating consequences of sin. They've had it. They've had it. Now they're living right. And so what happens? They throw a Passover celebration, a festival to the Lord, unlike anything that had ever happened in Israel before. What's going on? 
God's moving, bringing his people back to him. The revival is on the move. Hallelujah. Oh, while you're in the middle of it, having a great time, getting right with God and enjoying uh, the presence of the Lord, what does this mean? Oh, it means uh, not too long from now, some form of judgment is coming. Oh, and it certainly did come, and we see it in Second Kings chapter 25. Let's jump over there just for a moment. Second Kings chapter 25. We're going to go 40 years into the future. That's all it took to go from a monumental, spiritually high moment at the Passover where the whole nation is turning back to God, and boom, in 40 years, the revival has cooled, hearts have grown cold, and now uh, the kingly court has become a puppet's court, and it's become a bunch of people that now, uh, although they should be in covenant with God, they have broken covenant, and thus we see now the tragic uh, results of that. Second Kings chapter 25, verse 2. Let's start in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe. How many of you know famines? Woo! That's, that's awful stuff. Uh, I have been told that one of the most painful ways to die is starvation. Oh, praise God. And so they are stuck in the middle of a famine. Remember, they've, they've turned away from God. They're not serving God anymore. And Zedekiah, was, he, was, uh, he was a rebel. He was very disrespectful to the Lord, very dishonorable to the Lord. And so now there's no food for the people of the city. Verse 4, then the city wall was broken through. And all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain. Now, of course, for those of you that have been to Jerusalem, I'm sure some of you probably uh, drifted over to Zedekiah's cave. It's not really on many tour routes, but it is something that you would, you would definitely want to go by. Uh, I've been there several times, and this is the cave where some of the rabbis, uh, Rabbi Ravi, uh, a brilliant theologian uh, of the Old Testament scriptures, said that's how Zedekiah escaped. He and his royal court, they got on fast horses and they went out through the secret tunnel, uh, out through what became known as Zedekiah's cave, kind of like what we would call a secret escape route. Uh, the only problem is that the Chaldeans had some real fast horses and their horses were well fed and not starved down and uh, lacking the ability to run. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. So anyhow, you, you know, they're going to catch Zedekiah. That's exactly what happened. They overtook him in the plane. Uh, there's actually a spring inside of Zedekiah's cave, and uh, it's called the spring is called Zedekiah's Tears because his ending was really, really bad. But um, anyhow, very interesting cave. By the way, that cave has so many... Uh, if, if you go down to it, it takes a while to get all the way to the bottom, but when you get down there, you'll notice there's many passageways going off, but they've got these iron... Uh, 
grates over them, so you cannot explore. But some people have done a lot of exploring. One of those men, Ron Wyatt, uh, uh, says that he actually found uh, quite a few things uh, there in one of those hidden tunnels that opened up into an open area. That's a completely different story, but it's a very fascinating place. Long story short, he says that he found the Ark of the Covenant, excuse me, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, along with uh, many other fascinating artifacts, including uh, the sword of Goliath. So he said that was there in the room too. And that's all, according to him and, and some others, that's all being kept there, top secret, locked up and barred until the right time for when it will be brought out. Different story, different uh, train of thought, but uh, everywhere you go in Israel, there's history everywhere, even down at the bottom of Zedekiah's cave. All right, let's find out what happened to him. Verse 6, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon. So they caught him. Their horses were faster than his. And they took him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. He had to stand there and watch while they... Uh, killed his own sons. Then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon, poked his eye his eyes out with iron, hot iron pokers. Whoo, Lord have mercy. Boy, I tell you, sin, the devil, he's a liar. Sin will kill you. It'll, it'll, it'll blind you spiritually. And in Zedekiah's case, blinded him physically and spiritually. So we want to live right. So you can see again the precedent. Revival, 40 years earlier. Phenomenal revival, touching the whole nation. 40 years later, boom, just a big mess. King's not living right. People aren't serving God. The priesthood is corrupt again. Total mess. What happens? What happens? Boom, judgment. Mm-mm. Praise the Lord. All right, let's look at one more siege. The third major siege of Jerusalem, very famous one, of course, occurred in 70 AD by the Roman general. Uh, his name, of course, was Titus. And Titus destroyed the temple. Um, he actually wanted to preserve it, but uh, somebody threw a torch in, one of the Roman guards threw a torch in, uh, probably caught a few curtains or something like that on fire. The curtains caught the wood on fire. The next thing you know, the whole thing is on fire. And as it began to burn, it began to, the fire began to melt all the gold. And as the gold is melting, the gold began to run in between the stones, thus causing the prophecy of Jesus to be fulfilled. Not one stone will be left on top of another because they're tearing the temple apart now to get uh, extract all the gold uh, that has melted and stuff like that. So the only thing left today is a retaining wall. That's not part of the temple. That's just part of the wall that uh, that holds the dirt and debris back from which the temple set up on that mount, Mount Moriah. But fascinating. So Titus, they... Uh, whew, Heavy, heavy destruction uh, that that he brought there to Jerusalem. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus said, though, that before that siege wall was established, every Christian, okay, every Christian had already fled Jerusalem. They were gone. So the only ones there were Jews who did not accept uh, Jesus as Messiah, and they're there. And I tell you what. Uh, they put up a good fight. The, uh, the the Jewish people that were there put up a good, strong resistance. But when 
uh, Titus's men finally broke through. They were so angry and mad and frustrated. Titus could not restrain them. Those men uh, started killing everybody in front of them, men, women, child. Now, there were some that survived. Those they took back to participate in the gladiator games. By the way, if you've ever wondered who built the Roman Colosseum, and you think, wow, what a, an amazing spectacle. They created this way back then. Wonder how they paid for it. Well, they paid for it from the spoils that they took from the plunder of Jerusalem. And of course, there in Rome is the tart, excuse me, the Arch of Titus, and they're engraved literally on the stone of that uh, uh, triumphant victory arch, which is which they marched through, and all the, all the captive Jews marched through that they took to Rome. Well, there is a, a carving of many of the items that were taken from the temple, including the menorah of all things. How about that? Hmm. Uh, it's very interesting that Israel has chosen the menorah as their national symbol. That's also, for those that would know, a little bit of a snub back to uh, the Romans who had taken it from them. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, history is amazing. So, uh, so think about this. 40 years earlier, only 40 years earlier, you had, maybe we could call it the revival of revivals. You had God in the flesh walking around in Jerusalem, in Israel, blind people being healed, lepers being cleansed, dead being raised. And you had God, Emmanuel, you had God with you there, Jesus Christ. And yet 40 years later, boom, phenomenal judgment upon the city. Very, very interesting. And even with the mighty revival that took place after the Lord's ascension and the birth of the church, still we see that it wasn't long after that, 70 AD, and uh, just tremendous judgment. So revival proceeds. It goes before judgment. This is very important to know when we're looking at the last days of the church and the role that revival is going to play when we get our job done, and then what will follow that. You already have a good idea now of what's coming once we complete our assignment. Praise the Lord. Mm -mm. Now stop and think about uh, even the early church and how mighty uh, that move of God was. For example, uh, we have Acts chapter 5, verse 15. Where concerning Peter, it says that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least a shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Well, I have to be honest. Um, uh, I would like to see more of the mighty presence of the Lord so thick that we can't stand up. Uh, I would like to see that and more. And I would also like to see things like this, where the anointing and the glory is manifested so strong that even the person that is under that anointing, that if you get within the proximity of the shadow and that shadow falls on you, then praise God, you're completely healed of whatever it is that is troubling you. Praise the Lord. So this is the early church. This is the early church. Praise the Lord. And then we have Acts chapter 17, and we have verse 6. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. 
So they turned the world upside down there in the first century. The early church did. Praise God. So there was a mighty revival uh, going on, of course, with Jesus there. Then after his ascension, the early apostles and the explosive growth of the church and then Gentiles being added to the church. But it wasn't shortly after that when tremendous judgment was also poured out. So all of these examples are uh, something that's revealing patterns to us of what is also going to happen. Watch this in the last Days, Are you ready? Mm -mm. Woo, praise God. I assure you, history will repeat itself. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Now, the second coming of the Lord will be after a final siege of Jerusalem. We see that very clearly in the book of Zechariah. Let's take a peek at it just for a moment. I really like the book of Zechariah. A lot of angelic activity in this book. But here in the book of Zechariah, chapter 12, verse 2, we see the word says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. Mm -mm. Two more verses. Verse 8, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Can I give you some very simple eschatology. Can I help reduce your eschatology down to a very simple uh, one-liner? Don't ever mess with the Jews. <laughs> Pastor Stephen, that's deeply philosophical. Please say that again. Okay, here it is. Don't ever mess with the Jews. Don't ever harm Israel. Don't ever be involved in anything where you would try to split or divide their land or bring any type of harm harassment, or hurt against the Jewish people. It never ends good for any person or nation that chooses to do something so wicked and contrary to the word of God to the harm, uh, the harm to people, the Jewish people. Praise the Lord. Mm, okay, I hope I got my point across real good on that. Thank you, Jesus. Now, let's look at a couple of references that also would indicate to us the end-time plan that God has for the church concerning epic revival. Mm -mm -mm. Let's go to the law. Praise the Lord. And I tell you what, it's hard to find a clearer example than this, than what we find in the book of Leviticus. Let me jump over there just for a moment. Hallelujah. We're going to the book of Leviticus chapter 23. Hallelujah. The word Leviticus means pertaining to the Levites, rules and regulations that they had to learn and understand while working there at the tabernacle. Okay, so here in Leviticus chapter 23, we see the unveiling of the seven feasts. And these feasts were kept by the Israelites every year, and they actually have a very significant spiritual application for you and I as believers in Christ Jesus. So let's look very briefly at a summary of the seven feasts 
and what they mean as typified to us here in the church. Number one, we have the Feast of Passover, and that clearly speaks of salvation. Next, we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that speaks of feeding upon the Word of God. Next, we have the Feast of First Fruits. This speaks of water baptism. Next, we have the Feast of Pentecost, and this speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We have, fifth, the Feast of Trumpets, and this speaks of hearing a fresh call, a fresh word from God. And then we have the Feast of the Day of Atonement, and this clearly is speaking of purification. And last, we have the most famous one of all, the Feast of Tabernacles, and this speaks of the Last Day Revival, which will be, my friends, a great time of joy and mighty, unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, and then that glory radiating out so strong that the multitudes, countless multitudes by the millions, will be drawn to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. The church is coming into her finest hour. That means you're coming into your finest hour. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So the early church experienced the Feast of Pentecost. We see that very clearly, Acts chapter 2. But the last day church will experience the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is the last feast of the Jewish religious calendar, and it's also known in Scripture as the Feast of Ingathering. We see it called the Feast of Ingathering there in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, verse 16. Also, Exodus 34, verse 22, mentions this feast as being called the Feast of Ingathering. Okay, so this was the time during this feast that the Israelites brought in all of their harvest and they thanked the Lord for their bountiful crops. Praise God, especially this is the golden wheat harvest. Mm -mm. Now, you had the barley harvest earlier in the year, but how many of you know you don't really want to... Uh, eat too much barley bread, a little bit rough, praise God. But the Lord said, I'll feed you with the finest of the wheat. Okay, that comes in during the ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is a picture of the end time church's revival experience. So we see this referred to in the seventh feast of the Lord, that the seventh feast is a type and shadow of the ingathering of the great harvest of souls at the end of the church age. Praise, praise God. Now, we've seen an example from the law. Let's go to the prophets, and we have talked about this one before. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 60, and let's go down to verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Now, some people would say, oh, well, Pastor Stephen, you're getting really excited, but this is talking about the millennium. This is talking about when Jesus Christ will rule and reign over the earth for 1,000 years. But according to the next verse, that can't be. For we see in verse 2, For behold, 
The darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. My friends, there's not going to be deep darkness during the millennium. This is not talking about the millennium uh, when Jesus is ruling from Jerusalem over the whole world. No, there's not going to be gross, deep darkness. No, this is talking about the end of the age, and we're there right now. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness to people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And trust me, when the world sees it, they're going to want. They're going to want uh, access to God. They're going to want to receive salvation and eternal life. Verse 3 validates that. The Gentiles shall come to your light. Well, I don't know, Pastor Stephen, if they're going to want it. Well, there will be some that won't, but there will certainly be those that do because God's word says they will. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Mm -hmm. Praise God. Hallelujah. How about Joel chapter 2? How about that for a witness from the prophets also of the revival outpouring that the end time church can anticipate and expect. We have here Joel chapter 2 verse 23. Be glad then you children of Zion and rejoice in the Lord your God for he has given you the former rain faithfully and he will cause the rain to come down for you the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. Now the former rain would fall in Israel very softly and what that does is it makes the ground soft and it allows the seed to be planted and everything to get gently watered. But the latter rain is a much, much heavier, stronger rain. And what that is going to do is now going to saturate all the crops with water. Why? So that the crops can come into maturity. Mm -mm. So that the church can come into maturity. Mm, Praise God. Hallelujah. My friends, We know that Peter made reference to Joel chapter 2 and verse 28 in the early church. And so they had the, they had the former rain. But my friends, we're going to get the latter rain. We're going to get the gusher. Mm -mm. Praise God. Peter said, and uh, quoting Joel, he said, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. So that portion has been fulfilled to a degree, but it's going to come even stronger when we, as the end time church, experience the mighty latter rain of the Holy Spirit. Praise God forever. Thank you, Jesus. Now. The New Testament. Let's go to the New Testament now and look and see what the New Testament says about the end time church. Well, we must go to Ephesians chapter 5 because this, this tells you exactly what the end time church is going to be like. We're going to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to drop down to verse 25. And here we read, A husband's love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water, how? By the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church. Okay, so is the Lord coming back for a defeated church, a church that's all banged up, bruised up, and messed up? 
No, he's coming back for a glorious church. Therefore, there must be an outpouring of the spirit of might and power and wisdom and glory and blessing so that the church is presented in this fashion. Praise God that he might present her, the church, to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. What does that tell us? It tells us that Christ, through the working of the Holy Spirit and the anointed word, he is going to bring his bride to maturity and perfection. Praise God. That's in the scripture. That, that is the only bride he's coming back for. And so, my friends, we need to prepare ourselves for this mighty outpouring. How does this happen? How does this take place? Through the spirit of revival, where there is a quickening, a charge. I must prepare myself. Hallelujah. And you're on fire for the Lord, and the Lord's moving in your life, and you're going in this direction of the glorious church, not the defeated church, the glorious church. Hallelujah. The gates of hell will not ever prevail against the true church. Praise God, the glorious church. Hallelujah. Now, look at John chapter 2, the gospel of John. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Glory to God. I was thinking about this scripture earlier, and it was blessing my heart when I was thinking about it. Let's take a look at it just for a moment. I think we could go in many directions with it, but I just want us to look at it for a minute. We're in John chapter 2, verse 6. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews. Watch this. Containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So you multiply, let's say 30 by 6, you got 180 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Well, the master of the feast, he gets all excited. And he said to them, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs did uh, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You're going to again see the Lord manifest his glory. And my friends, it's the style of God. He saves the best for last. Praise God. We're working with biblical precedents here. We're working with biblical patterns. This allows us to know where we're going and what's coming next. Basically, Jesus turned that water into wine to where if you wanted wanted to put it in a modern day equivalent, he just created about 700 bottles of vintage perfect wine because that's a lot of water. Those water pots were big. So you got, you got, you got, you know, they didn't have bottles back then. They did, but glass was extremely rare only for the ultra wealthy. But that's a lot to drink now. And almost to the point you, you would think, why so, Lord, why did you create so much, so much? Because that's the way it's going to be. The wine of the Spirit will be flowing in the last days. Uh, Jesus said, out out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. And that was when he was making that statement and revealing himself to the people as the Son of God. That was during the Feast of 
tabernacles. Praise God. So this is a sign from God, the manifestation of the glory. The church is going to be uh, walking in the glory of God, and we are going to be accomplishing the gospel mandate. Praise God. Glory to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. That's very, very powerful. He saves the best for last. Can you imagine going to a fireworks display here in America? For those of you in the States, you know on July the 4th, we have our national uh, day of independence. I have never seen one firework display ever in my life where they put the grand finale up front. It always comes at the end. You, you have the biggest display at the end, and that's what God is going to do at the same time with the church. He's going to pour out the wine, the glory upon his people in the end times and the great miracles are going to be at the end. And everything at the front and in between has been beautiful and glorious, but the style of Jesus is that he saves the best for last. Hallelujah. Praise God. Prepare your heart to walk in the end time anointing and the glory that God is going to be pouring out. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Very quickly, very quickly, let's go over to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We're looking at New Testament precedents that give us pattern and understanding of where the church will be in the end times. We're now in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 13, and I would like for you to go with me down to verse 37. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest, the harvest is the end of the age. And because their seeds are sown to the world, this you're talking about global revival harvest. My friends, lift up your eyes. The fields are ripe for harvest. We must, in this hour and age, have a global perspective of world evangelism. There will be entire nations that turn to God. My Lord, have mercy. We must get prepared. Mm -hmm. We must be ready. <laughs> Lest we be overwhelmed with the harvest. <laughs> The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. There is a harvest at the end of the age. Jesus said it himself. And the reapers are the angels. We're going to be working with the angels to pull in this massive harvest of souls. Matthew chapter 13, we move to now to the parable of the dragnet. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the unjust, from the just and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, you see the pulling of the massive dragnet and the great harvest of souls, and the separation of those that would be fake, that did not have severe, uh, sincere conversions. Uh, uh, I tell you what, my friends, we are going to see the nets pulled, and we have the privilege to be a part of that. Praise God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. 
And one more scripture. Let's, let's go to this one. This one's powerful. Matthew chapter 24. And let's remember that there is a harvest at the end of the age, and we are, we are moving into these final days of the end of the age. Hallelujah. We don't know how many months, how many years we may have, or how many weeks we may have. But my friends, it's time to be busy. It's time to be all hands on deck, as they say in the Navy. Praise God. Because we have a big assignment coming up on us. And it's going to get, uh, it's going to get very, very active for those that are prepared. Now, we're in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. Look at verse 14. And this Gospel of the Kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then, not before then, and then the end will come. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of ethnic groups of people on the earth living right now that have never heard the gospel. They have never even heard the name Jesus before. They have no awareness even of a book called the Bible. They know nothing. We are going to take the gospel to them. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. Well, Pastor Stephen, uh, you, you, you have said that there's biblical pattern that there is revival and then re- revival uh, goes before judgment. Yes, yes. One more time, look at verse 14. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Well, what comes after the end of that? What's coming? Verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation. There always is. There's always some form of tribulation. This is the great one, but there's always some form of tribulation or trouble or some type of massive judgment that follows any pure revival, any great move of God. That is a time to pull the nets. God gets in as just as many as he can before the tough times hit. And then uh, difficult times begin to unfold. But my friends, after this mighty outpouring of the spirit and a, what we're looking at, literally a worldwide harvest of pulling the nets where God's spirit is moving and angels are working with those that are involved in this, and, and, and the involvement is not just preaching and teaching. The involvement, it, it runs the whole gamut from the helps ministry to those that are called to uh, uh, be successful in finances, to pour in provision. We're all going to do our part. And then when we've got it accomplished, then verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. Wow. So we have to do all we can to get this job done. We're going to get it done. Then what happens? The the pattern repeats. Judgment, tribulation. And this one rolls into the great tribulation, which we'll see 10 kings form a confederacy of a revived empire that previously existed, most likely in the old Roman empire. And out of that will come an 11th king who will be the antichrist more commonly called the scripture as the beast. Oh, my friends, that is the judgment that follows. But first, we will have the global revival. Praise God. Mm-mm. And at the right time, there will be the catching up of the saints. And God will preserve and protect his people. Mm-mm. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Well, Pastor Stephen, what should we do? Three things. Prepare, prepare, 
prepare. Prepare with all of your heart and pray and be ready with all of your heart to live for God and to make yourself available to God in whatever, whatever fashion that he wants to utilize you in in this global outreach. Praise God. Let's close with this scripture. 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Praise the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. My friends, God wants to do exploits through you. He wants you to be involved in world evangelism, whatever that part is. Hallelujah. It could be on the forefront. It could be sometimes, as we would say, in a, in a, in a position that maybe it's not noticed publicly or something that's recognized or acknowledged publicly, but God sees it. And you're working for, you're working for the Lord and the Lord will honor and bless those and credit that to the eternal account. Oh, the angels keep such good records. Hallelujah. Oh, glory to God. My friends, we must find our place and we must have a big vision, a big heart, a big outreach. Right now I have two, two contracts that are, are being reviewed by uh, myself and our team as we're considering expanding further. We're talking about uh, the potential to reach 500 million souls with two contracts, with two networks that I'm looking at right now and, and uh, praying over, oh, I feel the anointing. Hallelujah. <laughs> and one of, the, one of the networks has a satellite that covers uh, nations, and uh, so many nations. It's just incredible. And it's a hot spot, too, on the, on the, on the uh, global hot spot of where God's moving. Now, he's going to move all over. What we're talking about that's coming is a worldwide revival. And when I say worldwide revival, I'm not saying that uh, everybody's going to get born again. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there will be revival in the church, those in the church that receive it, and it's going to be fiery, it's going to be phenomenal, and it will be so strong that those in the world cannot ignore what is going to be taking place. And while everybody in the world, of course, will not uh, accept Christ, many will, millions will, will, and you're going to see God move so phenomenally in the Middle East. You're going to see so many people in the Middle East get saved and receive Christ. It will literally run into the numbers of millions who will turn to Christ. Glory to God. Mm-hmm. Whew, thank you, Jesus. Excuse me just a moment. So we must do all we can while we have time. And we have time, and this is where God's focus is at. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for those that are watching, that if they had any uh, notions of the future, of uh, perhaps shutting down, or thinking that the church is destined for demise and failure, I pray, oh God, that they uh, have their minds renewed by your word and quickened by your spirit to realize that this is the church's finest hour where the glory is going to shine on the church with such brilliance that many will be drawn to Christ because he's exalted and lifted high. Now, Father, we give you praise. 
Let your people be prepared. Let them prepare right now to be a part of this. We thank you because it's already moving in many ways. It's already moving. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. If you're watching this program and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, there's only two places you go when you die. You either go to heaven with Christ or you go to hell with the devil. My friends, choose life right now. Choose the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from sin. Jesus is ready to receive you and welcome you into his eternal kingdom right now. Pray this prayer after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. Wash my sins away. Write my name in your book of life. And Jesus, save me now. And I dedicate my life completely to you. And I turn from sin. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you. And from this day forward, Lord, strengthen me to live for you. And show me the place you have for me in your kingdom. Jesus, in your name I pray, amen. Now shout hallelujah for God saving your soul, amen. Welcome to the family of God. Praise the Lord, glory to the Lord. Let's take Holy Communion together. I want to invite you to grab some grape juice and some unleavened bread. Praise the Lord. And before we receive the communion, I feel the Holy Spirit burning in my heart. Uh, and I just want to share the opportunity that we have right now for the ministry to purchase a hanger that will suit the ministry very well for years and years to come for the future incoming mission jet that we're going to acquire. But you, if you're going to have a horse, you have to have a stall already prepared to put it in. And so the same with us. We have to go step by step. And we have a hanger that is for sale that has been presented to us to purchase. It is in excellent condition. The size is, uh, is perfect for what we, the aircraft that we want to get, and it's available right now. And I need to hear from you over the next few days because we want to bring the provision in by Thanksgiving, which is November the 25th, so that we can go up by the blessing of the Lord and purchase this hanger. The needed goal is $400,000. Whatever the Holy Spirit would put on your heart to do, whether it's large or small, all you have to do is your part. If we each do our part, then God will see it, He will bless it, and He will make this very, very possible for us, and we will be able to do it. So that's all I'm asking. Just do what the Holy Spirit would impress upon your heart to do. And sow your seed with joy. And as you sow your seed, name your seed as a thanksgiving seed. And I believe a harvest is going to come back to you where the dream that God has for you of the exploit for you to accomplish, God will bring provision, grace, wisdom, and strength to accomplish your assignments as well. Praise God. This hangar will give us the base with the future aircraft to travel out locally and go directly internationally to any destination that we need to go to preach the gospel. I, I am not exaggerating. I get invitations all the time to go all over the, the world and preach. And in many of these countries, of course, they're wide open, uh, uh, the COVID virus notwithstanding, they're, they're still just wide open. And so 
My friends, I have to be able to do it quickly, though, because of everything else that's going on in the ministry now. This will make that available. And while we are going through many different formats of uh, and many platforms of television and the Internet and things like that, there is still the vital need to lay hands on people and to minister to people in person uh, uh, there. So that is why we need this ministry tool. Praise God. Thank you for standing with us and uh, helping us to reach this goal. Praise the Lord. All right, so we only have a few more days. Send in your best offering, praise God, and send it as a seed because God will multiply your seed, and every seed has a future. Every seed has massive harvest potential. And I'm praying that God will multiply your seed. If you would like to bring that in by mail, send it to Stephen Brooks International, P.O. Box 717 Moravian Falls, North Carolina, zip code 28654. If you would like to bring it in online, you could do so from anywhere in the world. It is a joy to see offerings coming in from all over America. It's a joy to see offerings coming in from China, from New Zealand, from the other side, literally, of the planet. Thank you for your giving. We're going to get the souls, praise God. We're going to get the souls, hallelujah. We're going to build up the church, and we're going to get the souls, praise the Lord. Glory to God. All right, if you want to bring in the offering in online, visit the website stephenbrooks.org. There's a link on the homepage that says Give. It has a red heart on it. You can click it, and you'll see the de- designated area to sow into the hangar project. Praise God. Mm-mm-mm. Thank you, Jesus. Father, bless those that are sowing their seed. Let the anointing of the 100-fold uh, touch that offering and let them do mighty exploits for you for your glory thank you lord this is their time to shine thank you for a mighty lifting up to proclaim christ thank you father god in the distinctive assignment that you have given to them thank you father glory glory i see somebody that's a a businesswoman and you have a product and you want to sell it and you're sowing a seed so that god may touch your business and he will praise god Hallelujah. And there's many others in various capacities. God will bless you in your respected field. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Father, we thank you for the bread and juice. Hallelujah. We set it apart through this prayer. We bless it. We thank you. This is now the flesh and the blood of Christ. And Father, as we receive the body of the Lord Jesus, we thank you that on the radar... By the Holy Spirit, we are tracking the incoming mighty move of you, O God. Thank you, Father God. Let us be prepared. Let us be mindful. Thank you for the anointing of your Spirit. Hallelujah. Transforming us to do what we cannot do because it's by your power. Father, we receive now the flesh of Jesus. We give you praise for strength and grace. Thank you, O God. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's receive. And Heavenly Father, we thank you that you saved the best for last. At the wedding of Cana, the best wine was brought out last through the working of a miracle. And we thank you, Father, that the early church saw mighty things. They saw people being healed even by the the anointing reaching out like a shadow. And we thank you, Father, we're going to see that, and we're going to see it on a larger scale And we thank you, Father, we also anticipate the greater manifestations of your glory, even as the priests could not 
uh, they, they could not even stand in the temple. We thank you, Father, there will be such outpourings of your glory that sickness and disease will not be able to stand or stay in our bodies. Hallelujah. We thank you for energy and strength to do what you've called us to do. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. And as we receive the blood of Christ, Father, those that would be sick, those that are under attack by the dirty devil with some form of sickness or disease, we thank you that we receive the healing cup and that by the stripes of Jesus through his shed blood, we were healed and we believe it and we receive healing now by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's receive the blood of Jesus and receive by faith divine healing. Let's receive. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Amen. I see dreams coming to many of you at night. Stunning heavyweight dreams. You can't shake it off. You know it's not a pizza dream. You will hear from the Lord. Many of you are going to have a dream encounter with God. Praise the Lord. And others, you're going to have some different things take place with the angels that are working with you to do what God has called you to do. Praise God. The angels are directly involved in the end time harvest. And my friends, we're touching into that. So expect their help. You're going to have some unusual uh, situations take place. Glory to God. I've had angels help me before. My wife and I have had, a, we had an angel help us at the airport one time. And the whole time that we were talking uh, to this lady with red hair, we knew that she was an angel, but we were in such a rush. We couldn't we couldn't stop to really kind of like, you know, dig into it and say, hey, we know who you really are. We didn't have time. And when we came back uh, just after on the on the flight back uh, not, and went to the same area, not only was she not there, but the whole booth, the whole thing that she was standing in, none of that even existed. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You're going to have some strange experiences, but they'll be glorious. But the main thing is they move you forward in what God has called you to do. We'll all uh, understand it better in the by and by one day. Praise God. But sometimes when you're running, you don't even have time to uh, unwrap all of that. Praise the Lord. But it's still, you'll know it. You'll have a sense of it when it's taking place. Praise the Lord. Some of you that have your, uh, your respected career field, you're going to run into something that puzzles you and stumps you, and you're not going to know what to do, but you're trusting the Lord. But somebody's going to walk up and give you the exact advice that you need, and then they will walk away, and you'll probably never, ever see them again. And most likely, that was an angel of the Lord in, uh, veiled in a human form but it was actually an angel. Praise God. So the Lord's going to help us. Praise the Lord. Lift your hands. Father, we thank you for grace, for strength and anointing, and a clear perception of where the church stands in the last days. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father God. It will be like Elijah sitting on the mountaintop with uh, in a place of invested authority where he can speak a word and lightning comes out of heaven and destroys the wicked that would try to harm him. We thank you, Father God, that you're going to work through your people that are prepared to reach the multitudes. So, Father, let us be mindful to make our barns large. No small plans. Let us be mindful to make our barns, our projects large for your glory for the purpose of reaching not a few, but many.
And we thank you for your grace and the help of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Praise the Lord. My friends, thank you for watching. I look forward to seeing you back next time. Till then, stay prepared. Bye-bye.